But have you ever marinated? And if so, how deeply? What's not just a veneer of religious language, but really the core of your life? What matters most? And who matters most? The all-sufficiency of Christ. The enoughness of Jesus. So two weeks ago, we tried from Galatians 2 to see His inexpressible wonder that Christ lives in us. And out of His love for us, He gave Himself for us, as the catechism said just earlier today. So our life is not our own. We were crucified with Him. And last week from Colossians 1, His unrivaled preeminence, that He doesn't just hold first place in a list linearly, but He's the epicenter of everything about everything to all of His people. He's the all in all. He holds the place of prominence and preeminence. And today from Ephesians chapter 4, where I invite you to turn to look at the goal of the Gospel. That is, as has been mentioned, the theme of our service coming right out of Ephesians 4, the incalculable fullness of Jesus. And then, Lord willing, we'll look at Philippians 1 next week at the inestimable worth of Jesus. Well, for today's focus, as I mentioned, Ephesians chapter 4, one little verse, and it's bigger than our souls can contain. And astonishingly, it is contained in all the souls of God's people. Ephesians 4.13, let your eyes fall on this verse. Hear the word of the living God. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Once again, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Join me again at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help as we dance in this verse. Oh, Father, You have made our souls capable of containing the uncontainable of our mind and our heart knowing the unknowable. You're the one who describes the fellowship that we share with our blessed Lord Jesus as the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so for Your glory, we ask that we would be made to understand. And not only to understand, but in truth to understand. That is to apply what You are saying to us in Ephesians 4.13. We ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, there are many times in life when accurate measurements matter. It's matters of life and death. We know that on the surgeon's table. And there's so many moments in life when accurate measurements matter. Some more significant than significant than others, and I've tinkered along for the last year or so on trying to restore a little house that had set uninhabited in our backyard for six years. And for the last year, we've been working on that slowly but surely. Still have a long way to go. I had zero knowledge of home restoration before we began, so the learning curve was entirely up. And I have learned a lot. Many times over the last year, I've stretched a tape measure and made calculations, and with the help of others, they have been more accurate than when I was on my own. Much to my frustration, there have been times when cuts were made, and those cuts were made inaccurately, so the carpenter's law is measure twice and cut once, and not measure once and cut twice. Uh, But uh, ups and downs and frustrations, but really just seeing again the simple principle that accurate measurements matter. And the more precious the material, the more significant the measurement must be. We do, as I mentioned, want our surgeons to have precision 
and a steady hand. We want them both to measure accurately and to perform precisely as they deal in areas of incision and work with our organs. We want our bankers to calculate with precision our accounts. Many of you in maybe more memorable and sentimental ways have, like we do, a growth chart somewhere in your home. A big oversized ruler showing feet, not inches only. And you mark your children's development. And as eager as we are to see the little markings on the wall and the dates that go beside them, the children themselves, don't they, want accurate measurements. They want to see the progress and to see it accurately. There are important things in life that are to be measured, to be calculated. But the most important thing in life is incalculable. It cannot be measured. Your calculator would spin itself into oblivion to try to quantify the thing that's most important. Jesus uses the language of calculation many, many times in His teaching and in His parables. He said how foolish it would be for a man to begin to build a house without first calculating the cost. A calculator, a spiritual one anyway, is really the most important device that you own. It's not tangible. You can't put your hands on it. You don't push the buttons or dial it up on some techno gadget. It's deeply embedded in your soul. What is most valuable to you? How much value does it or he have? Today's focus is the incalculable fullness of Jesus. You may not think that He's of much value. And even if your words would say, no, uh, Jordan, He's of great value, it's really our life that demonstrates the value that Christ holds to us. But whether or not you or I think He's of any value, is irrelevant in the eternal scheme because God has already designated Him both Lord and Christ. He is, even now, adored by all the angels. If you hadn't thought of Him for a shred of a second this day, it has not changed the fact that all the angels in heaven have incessantly adored Him, worshipped Him. He doesn't rise and fall on our praises. You don't let Him down because you have never held Him up. He's the God of the universe. His value is inestimable. I believe that this little verse that we read two times is the single greatest one-verse summary of the Apostle Paul's aim of ministry. The calling that God has put on his life and really thereby all the lives of all of God's people. This is, to say it again, I believe the most condensed, the most synthesized, the most dense single verse statement of the purpose of the Gospel in the lives of the people of God. What is God after? What is the point? What is the goal? And as we dive into this verse, let's first make sure that we're on the same page about two things. First, the overall message of Ephesians. And second, the meaning of the word incalculable. First, the message of Ephesians. Ephesians, if you've spent any time in it at all, and the Spirit who inspired it dwells in you, then you know why men like Martin Lloyd-Jones in the previous generation were moved to push pause on everything else for more than six years to meditate together corporately with the people of God on the words of this book. For six years, Lloyd-Jones sought to unpack phrase after phrase and verse after verse the beauty of Christ from Ephesians. The book, as we said last week, is about the glory of Christ. So is the book of Colossians where we were last week. And Colossians, we said, is about the glory of Christ saturating the entire cosmos. And Ephesians is about the glory of Christ saturating His church, His people. Chapter 1 in Ephesians, we learn of the predestining love of God for us in Christ. It's not a doctrine over which we ought to fight and squabble. It's not meant to be contentious. It's meant to be humbling. That in love, the Father predestined us, chapter 1 says, to adoption as sons. 
And He did so before the foundation of the world. And He did so in Christ. But this predestining love of God came at great cost, not to us, but to Him. We're told in chapter 1 that all on the basis of His love and all flowing from the prerogative that He has within Himself, the cost was, quote, through the blood of His Son, chapter 1. And that God, as it were, reached His infinite arms around every single possible blessing in all of heaven and gave every blessing that He could reach with His infinite fingers and laid them upon our heads, quote, in Christ. But not only did the Father predestine us and the Son come and accomplish that great work of redemption in His own blood, but we're told also in chapter 1 that God the Holy Spirit is the one who seals to us or applies to us the redeeming work of the Son that came from the prerogative of the Father. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. But He seals us at a particular time in our lives. Not everybody is sealed. Not everybody, to use the word of chapter 1, is redeemed. Not everybody has the benefits or blessings of all of heaven's rewards given to them. Who has them? Chapter 1 would say, those who hear and believe the Gospel. Verse 13, But the crescendo of praise that is verses 3-14 to of chapter 1, which in the original Greek is one long sentence, one long run-on sentence of exclamation and glory given to God for His redeeming work in our lives. That is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The crescendo of praise echoes in and flows in to this statement that's given three times. All of God's redeeming work, we're told in Ephesians 1, is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Salvation should have a humbling effect on us and it should redound from us back in praise to God for who He is and what He has done for us in Christ. That's chapter 1. Concluding in a magnificent prayer that was prayed earlier by our sister in our corporate prayer time. Chapter 2, we're told about the power of the Gospel. Further unfolding the Detail of how it is God saves a soul. He doesn't resuscitate us when we're in the ambulance. He doesn't throw us a life raft when we're drowning at sea. He dives to the bottom of the ocean and apprehends our lifeless corpse when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no capacity to offer anything to God. It was in that moment, in our spiritual deadness, and because of His great mercy and love with which He loved us, that God made us alive together with Christ. And just to be sure, we would take no credit and put our grubby hands on the glory of God and start taking what belongs rightfully to the King of the universe, He says in no uncertain terms that all of our salvation is not by works, but by faith through grace, so that no man may boast. And chapter 2 tells us that because salvation is of such a nature, then it can reach to all peoples. And therefore, Ephesians 2 talks about the power of the Gospel to break down every conceivable barrier and dividing wall between the children of God. There is no longer a barrier between Jew and Greek if we are one in Christ. Chapter 3 goes on to unfold for us the riches of Christ in the Gospel that are ours. It's spoken of as a mystery that was hidden for past ages and generations. The Old Testament saints seeking as it were to fill their way toward the great prize of Christ and trusting that God would reveal Himself in a mediator one day and believing even through apparent impossibilities that God would in fact send this mediator and this Redeemer that Again, we heard about in our catechism, chapter 3 unveils to us that His name is Jesus. And not only Jesus, but 
the unfathomable Jesus. Paul was sent to proclaim the unfathomable riches of Christ in whom, chapter 3 says, we now have boldness and confident access through faith in God. We can approach God through Jesus. And chapter 3 ends with one of the most breathtaking prayers in the whole Bible where Paul bows his knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name and he prays these majestic things for them, namely, that Jesus would dwell in their heart through faith. That they would know the unknowable love of God in Christ and that they would be filled to all the fullness of God. You can't even touch the hem of the garment of that prayer. And then Paul says in the next verse, I'm asking that God would actually do immeasurably more than this. That He would do exceedingly beyond this in your life. And then chapter 4 turns practical. So what? What does it look like? Chapter 4 is all about the unity of the church in the Savior. Chapter 5 is about gospel applications to the members of this local church in Ephesus, which, by the way, the Apostle Paul spent more time with these people than he did any others in his ministry. He was there for three or three and a half years. He was preaching and ministering the Word of God. He was their pastor. He was serving them. So when he writes to them, he writes to people that he knows and that he has loved and that he has prayed for and that he has fellowshiped with Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day for three or three and a half years. And he, in chapter 5, says the Gospel applies to every aspect of your life. Are you a child? The Gospel applies to you. Are you a husband? It applies to you. A wife? It applies to you. Are you a worker? A servant? A slave? It applies to you as well. And he brings that home in chapter 6. He says, make yourself vulnerable to this God and He'll protect you. Put on the armor of God. Immerse your life in the security of Christ so that you too may live a life of prayer for the advance of the Gospel in the world. Well, that's Ephesians 1-6. through 6. And it ends, that is Ephesians ends, with one of the most penetrating verses in the whole Bible. It tells us who will receive the grace of God. In fact, it tells us who is receiving the grace of God. Ephesians 6.24, the last syllables of this majestic book say, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. The book of Ephesians is full of these words that are beyond our vocabulary. We're told of the surpassing greatness of His power in the prayer of chapter 1. Or the unfathomable riches of Jesus in chapter 2. We're told about this inestimable worth of Jesus in chapter 4 and this incorruptible love that belongs to us in Christ in chapter 6. What does incalculable mean? Well, the definition is simple. It's of a value that cannot be quantified. You cannot measure it. So when we speak of the incalculable fullness of Jesus, that's what we mean. You can't quantify His value. Synonyms to this word incalculable so you can get your heart and mind wrapped around it. We're talking about something that's innumerable or immeasurable. Something that's more immense than you can conceive. Multitudinous. Vast. A value that even in the day of our supercomputers is incomputable, inestimable, inestimable, countless, infinite. That's what we're referring to when we talk about the incalculable fullness of Jesus. Ephesians 4.13 is the Holy Spirit's way of grabbing your collar and pulling you close to the face of Christ so that you can see the radiance of His glory and so that you can know what He has called you to. There are two considerations from this verse. It breaks down nicely into two parts. And the first is this. The church as God's classroom for us to know and enjoy Christ's incalculable fullness. Well, if you can't remember all that, that's okay. Just know this. You cannot have the fullness of Christ by yourself. The verse says in Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. That's part A, B, and C of this verse. But notice the little words, we all. Until we all attain. And then it tells us in three ways what we all are to attain. Unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and maturity. Well, let's just take those three one at a time. 
If you look at the beginning of chapter 4, you'll find the words, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, that is y'all, you all, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you all have been called. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Notice the unity language in verse 3. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then notice unity again in the individualistic words of verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. Verse 5 continues, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all. So in verse 1, you all, southern y'all, it's not you personally, it's us corporately. The local church is the classroom in which we learn experientially the incalculable fullness of Jesus. And it begins with unity of the faith. Verse 2 speaks of showing tolerance to one another in love. Patience with each other. The unity of our faith depends on the uniqueness, the one and onlyness, of the One in whom we all believe. If we're all united to God in the One Redeemer, then we must also be united to one another in that Redeemer. There's one Savior, one God. Therefore, there's only as verse 5 says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all. Therefore, we are to pursue unity together. Or as verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Verse 3 says we are to be diligent to preserve this unity. Diligent. Work hard at it. Not passive, but active. We're led by the Holy Spirit in verse 4 as we diligently pursue this unity. We're all called to this, verse 4 says. So the hyper-individualism of our day that pervades this land, it runs right against the grain of the Gospel. Yes, God saves people individually. And though we say it here all the time, let us never tire of saying it again. Your salvation, your relationship with God in Christ is very personal. Very personal. But it is not private. You share in the unity of the faith. Notice that the text says that we all have the grace to pursue this God-honoring unity. Verse 7 says that. Speaking of that unity to each one of us, that's you, grace was given, quote, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now put your heart around that. That's an incalculable measure. As big as the gift of the death of Jesus is, so big is the amount of grace you have to diligently pursue unity with God's people. You lack nothing. If you'll not pursue unity with the people of God, it's not because there's not enough grace for you. It's because you're refusing to appropriate the grace that's already available to you in Christ. What an affront to God. Humble yourselves. Seek a relationship with God's people. Verses 8-10 to teach us that Christ humbled Himself to descend to the lower parts of the earth and then to ascend back to His throne in heaven from which He dispenses gifts to the church. Pastors, teachers, apostles, evangelists. He humbled Himself to descend. He rose from the dead after He was crucified. Ascended back to heaven so that we might be unified with Him forever. That's the basis of our unity. We're in Christ who humbled Himself. And God designed the church. He's the one that thought it up. He's the one that created this living organism. And if you read your New Testament even halfway carefully, you'll find out that though God's doing a trillion, billion, gazillion things in every nanosecond of our life, and we know about two of them, or three of them, we can't see all that God's doing, but if you read your New Testament even halfway carefully, you'll find out that there are three main things that God is doing in the last days. That is, when the Bible talks about the last days, it means the time between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. So we're living in the last days. They've been going for about 2,000 years. In the last days, God's doing three things. Number one, He is glorifying His great name. Number two, he is doing good for all of His people. 
And number three, He is getting the Gospel to the ends of the earth. Glorifying His name, doing good for His people, and advancing the Gospel. And if you read the New Testament again, halfway carefully, you'll find out that He is doing those three great works one way. The New Testament gives no other way that God Almighty is doing this. Is He gracious? Yes. Is He using other means? No doubt about it. But according to Scripture, there is one and only one way. That is the local church. From the resurrection to the return of Jesus. In the last days, what you find is Ephesians 3. God getting glory in the church. That's the glory of His name. Ephesians 2. God doing good for all of His people. Or as we will see in chapter 4, verse 12, that we may be edified built up in the faith. That's good for us. That's growing us up in Christ. He's doing that in the church. And equipping us for Gospel ministry. That also, Ephesians 4 says, is happening in the church. So the glory of His name and the good of His people, we can find just in Ephesians alone, is happening in and through the local church. And number three, getting the Gospel to the whole world. Guess how Ephesians begins and ends in chapter 1 and chapter 6? You guessed it. The Gospel in the church to the world. Paul even prays, asks the Ephesians to pray for him so that as he travels from them to other places, he would make the Gospel known boldly as he ought to. It's through the church that God's getting the Gospel to the world. So the unity of the faith is vitally important for our glorifying God, our being built up in the faith and equipped for ministry, and getting the Gospel to the world. That's 4.13a until we all attain to the unity of the faith. But the second thing the verse says there is there's a corporate aspect of our knowing Jesus. Notice the second phrase of Ephesians 4.13. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Increased knowledge of the Son of God is also a corporate pursuit. I don't know how deeply we believe this yet. Do you believe that you can know Him? Deeply know Him all by yourself? I didn't say, can He be known interpersonally? Of course He can. He loves you. He wants you to know Him. But what we're finding here in Ephesians 4.13 is unity of the faith and knowing the Son of God is something that happens among, quote, you all. Here's a litmus test for true Christianity. Do you have it? This is the test of do you belong to Jesus? It's one of the many in the Bible. A key question, do you want to know Jesus Christ as fully as He can be known by a saved sinner? Not do you just want to know Him a little bit, but do you want to know Him fully, deeply, as much as a saved sinner can? Well, the Bible tells us. You all knowing the Son of God happens in the context of the Ephesian church in our verse. Or the Philippian church in Philippians 3. We're told there that Paul's great ambition and remind you that he says this to a local church, not to an individual, is that I may know Jesus and the power of His resurrection. But that's after the fellowship of His sufferings and being made conformable to His death. Paul even says there, I count everything else to be lost in order that I may know Christ. Do you want to know Him? If so, He must be known in community with His people. There are facets of His beauty and His wonder that we just can't know by ourselves. And every Christian wants to know Him as fully as He can be known. In Jeremiah, God said, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let let not the strong man boast of his strength. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows Me. Psalm says those who know God's name will put their trust in Him. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The same word in Ephesians 4.13 for knowing the Son of God is the same word in John 17.3 that talks about eternal life as knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. It's an experiential word. It's a relational word. And Paul's saying we know Christ together. Because Christ's people are called to 
His incalculable fullness. To know Him. To know Him together. Then we should submit our lives to God's wise design in that regard. The third way that the beginning of the verse talks about the incalculable fullness of Jesus in our lives is unity of the faith, knowing the Son of God. And look at that third phrase. However yours renders it, to a mature man. Do you see it? Have you dug into your Bibles to know what it says about God's call in your life to pursue Christ-like maturity? Have you dug into your Bible to know what the Bible says about God's call on your life to pursue Christ-like maturity? Well, it's right here in this verse, and it's in just such a little phrase that could easily be overlooked, but I want you to focus on it for just a moment. This calling is not optional. Now, newborn babes, nobody would say, are physically mature. And God says that's how we're saved to begin with. 1 Peter 2.1 Like newborn babes. We're told already, I've mentioned in Ephesians 2, that we're brought from death to life. And Romans 1 says, by the power of the Gospel, we're newborn. We're, we're not mature when we're first converted. Yes, we're capable of taking in the milk of the Word, Hebrews 5, but God never intends to leave us there. Just like you would be concerned about your children if they remained on milk or formula only in their diet by the time they were 3 or 4 or 7 or 12 or 25, so also we should be concerned about any professing Christian who is so immature that they're not taking in the meat of the Word as they advance in their walk with Christ. Everybody God justifies, He sanctifies. 1 Corinthians 1.30 In fact, Jesus is our sanctification in that verse. If you walk with Him, He'll change you. He'll mature you. Christian maturation is God's call on your life if you're in the faith. You cannot remain where you're at. So the operative question, again, it's a test of your conversion. How are you pursuing increasing Christ-like maturity? Are you content where you're at? Ephesians 4.13 again says, we all as a mature man. You can't get there alone. The word for mature in this verse is the Greek word teleos. Now that word ought to sound very familiar to all the members of this church. Teleos. It's part of our grow up strategy in the faith together. Every single fall semester, we intend to walk through a different book of the Bible in our small group ministry. And so, I'll just show you here the ones we've walked through already. Last fall, we walked through the Gospel of John. Prior to that, at some point, we walked through the Gospel of Luke. We've gone through Matthew. And in two volumes, we've gone through the book of Acts. Also in two volumes, we've gone through the book of Genesis. And prior to all that, we went through the book of Isaiah. Now this isn't meant to be impressive. This is meant to help us. And so right here, I have my own handwritten notes on every passage of each of these books. Now again, that's not to be impressive. As I've studied these daily on my own and meditated and prayed through them and tried to understand and looked at the notes that are supplied, I've also attended my small group. And in a different color pen, which is my strategy, which I bring to my small group, I'm also writing insights to those passages that I never saw. From brothers like Ben Gaiman and from Brett Rogers. Times that I've spent in my living room with Zach Jones. And I could go down the line over and over and over again of markings in a different color pen that I didn't come up with. God gave them to me through another brother. Well, this verse says we're all to be teleos. We're all to be mature. And that is the largest part of how it happens. Not necessarily that particular strategy, but immersing our life in the Word of God together with the saints so that we may together chew on the meat of the Word and thereby mature in the faith. To be teleos, a mature man. The key verse of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest recorded sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the key verse of the Sermon on the Mount is the last verse of Matthew 5. And He says it this way, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's the same word teleos. Do you want to go to heaven when you die? Here's Jesus' standard. You have to be as perfect as God or you don't get in. 
Matthew 19.21, Jesus to the rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, teleos, go sell all you have and come and follow Me. But that man left sad. He was offered the greatest treasure in the universe, and he would rather hold on to temporal things. Colossians 1.28, the theme verse for our teleos ministry says, we proclaim Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man so that we may present every man teleos, complete in Christ. That's what Ephesians 4.13 is about. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, knowing Him experientially, and all together maturing. Well, the last part of this verse, and our second point, not only the church is the classroom for knowing the incalculable fullness of Jesus, but the degree to which we're to know the incalculable fullness of Jesus. How unified? How much must we know Him? How mature must we be? Well, the last part of the verse says it plainly. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's a mouthful. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's the degree to which the church is called to know and enjoy the incalculable fullness of Jesus. The measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In the first three phrases of the verse, we find specific aspects of God's call on every Christian, no exceptions. Pursue unity of the faith with other Christians. Do it in the context of the church. Number two, pursue knowing the Son of God more and more and more. And number three, pursue Christ-like maturity deep down in your character. But Paul knows that we're all innate relativists. He knows that we all like to set our own goalposts. And then when we don't reach our goals, he knows that we like to move them so that we look better. He knows that we would be tempted to think a little more unity among us than we presently have. Or a little more knowledge of Jesus than I had last year. Or maybe a little more maturity than some of the people around me seem to have. He knows that we would appease our consciences. And we would then grow stagnant and lukewarm personally. We would grow divided interpersonally. We would actually be a reverse witness to the community about the truth of the Gospel if we got to set our own standard for how unified, how much we know Jesus, and how mature we'll be. So He doesn't leave it to our own imagination. This little phrase, friends, I try not to say things like this too often. I said at the beginning, it's the, most, it's the single most condensed, dense, packed, saturated statement of the purpose of Paul's ministry in the whole Bible. This little phrase is a bite of the most exquisite steak in the Bible. It is a mouthful of every delectable delight contained in the deity and humanity of Jesus. And it's all yours. The final phrase of Ephesians 4.13 is, I believe, that most condensed summary of Paul's entire ministry aim found in any of his 13 letters. It is the heart of God Himself. It is the goal, if you will, about why God saved you. Why did He come hunt you down? Why did He take you His own free captive? Why did He unshackle you from the burden of your sin as Jesus Himself bore the penalty that you deserve before God at the cross of Calvary? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ carry your sins deep into the grave as far as the east is from the west and rise again to life everlasting so that you might have His righteousness if you would just put all your faith in Him and turn from all your effort to save yourself, acknowledging that you're as bad as the death of Jesus required and you're as loved as the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved. Why did He do it? This is God's heart in saving you. This is God's heart in saving me. The Holy Spirit says this, so that you and I, not alone but together, in the context of local churches in time, in the context of the one local church that will gather for all eternity in heaven, the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. 
How much unity must we attain, Paul? The measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How much knowledge of the Son of God? The measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How much maturity in Jesus must be wrought in my life equal to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Jesus? I love just reading different translations of the Bible in my sermon preparation and just personal meditation. The Holman Christian Standard renders verse 13 this way. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. King James. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me put it to you as plainly as I can. As full as Jesus is of the fullness of God, to that degree you also must be full. As complete of maturity, in maturity, as Jesus is, so too must your stature of maturity be complete. This is the standard of the Christian life. A person. Jesus. He is the goal. He is the supply. He is the finish line upon which we are to fix our eyes, Hebrews 12.2. Or as David Dixon said those hundreds of years ago in his sermon, He, Jesus, is the sum of all saving knowledge. Ephesians 1 says every blessing in the heavenly places is in Jesus. If you don't want to be full of Christ from the bottom of you to the top of you, and then back from the top of you to the bottom of you, and through and through you, if you don't want to be full of Christ, then you don't want Christianity. What God offers to sinners to come into fellowship with Himself is His Son. We are Christian. We belong to Christ. The great gift that God gives to anybody is Jesus. The fullness of Jesus in your life with His people in His presence forever is what we're rehearsing right here today. The forgiveness of our sins is a prelude. It is the prelude to the great gift of eternal life. Which Romans says, after He releases us from our sins, He works holiness into us, that is sanctification, the outcome of which is eternal life. What will we do forever as the people of God who are united to Him in Christ? We will quote, behold the glory of God in the face of His Son. Or to quote Jesus, we will quote, see His glory. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesian church in, the ch in chapter 3. I want you filled with all the fullness of God. And to people who are already Christians, I want Christ to dwell in your heart through faith. And for people who already know the Gospel, that they would know the unknowable love of Jesus, how high and how deep, how broad and how wide, that they would be immersed in who Christ is and all that He is for them. Do you know as much as a saved sinner can know the unknowable love of Jesus? Have you put a ceiling or a threshold on His value in your life? Are you aiming for a little bit more maturity or a little bit more knowledge or a little bit more unity? Or are you aiming for the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ? When God calls a man to preach the Gospel, God gives him one glorious charge. Proclaim the unfathomable riches of Jesus. That's all we have to offer you. And that's all that will ever satisfy you. And you must have that all for yourself, but you cannot have that all by yourself. So in application, I have a word to those who are Christians, and I have a word to those who are not yet Christians. First to Christians. Have you been blessed or would those around you say that you've been endowed with the gift of discouragement and disunity? Are you somebody who casts shadows on the church's unity? Are you what Hebrews calls a root of bitterness? 
Are you given to murmuring and complaining? Do you let your lips say everything your brain thinks, especially negatively about individuals and Christ's bride? Do you point out the fault lines in the bride of Christ without seeking to be the solution to her many, many, many weaknesses that we all see? Then you are in allegiance with Satan. You are warring against the Son of God. And I declare to you that God demands for you to repent. God has called you to pursue unity of the faith. Number two, are you content with the degree to which you now know Christ? Have you stalled in your pursuit of intimate acquaintance with the Son of God? Has your Bible become a relic in your own home? Does God's love letter to you sit unread and unapplied? Have you been long without converse between another brother or sister about the wonderful things of the Gospel or the riches of God's Word or the applications that they would have to you in your particular circumstances? Then you too, I also in love declare, God's Word to you is to repent. Tomorrow never comes for those who say that they're going to begin their pursuit of Jesus tomorrow. The Word of God is already sweeter than honey, and it was yesterday. It is already more precious than our whole life and my next breath. Return then to the fountain of the flowing waters of God's Word with an eye toward you being filled to the brim with the knowledge of the Son of God. Pledge yourself again afresh, all by the grace of God, not by willpower, to gain a thorough acquaintance with Christ in the company of His people. Because you'll not know him alone. You want me to desermonize that? Find some other people who are committed to the same local church and walk together with them in the Word of God until your heart is on fire with the beauty of Christ. Number three, finally to the Christian, are you seeking to be made complete, teleos, mature? As Robert Murray McShane prayed, that 29 year old who lived. Many lifetimes in those 29 years. Are you seeking to be made as holy as a saved sinner can be? Are you tracking down Christ-like maturity as if you're on the hunt? Has your degree, if you will, of sanctification satisfied you? Have you bought the lie of cultural righteousness just so long as you fit somewhere sort of in the middle of where the rest of the people are? then that's enough. Is your present experience all there is to offer in the untold riches of the Gospel? Has your growth been stunted? Has it receded rather than advanced and increased? Can you think of fond- with fondness of the days when the brightness of Christ's face was magnetic to your soul? Can you remember what it used to be like when you were growing in Him and advancing in Him irregardless of your circumstances which He providentially arranged at 17 so that you would seek Him? Can you remember what it formerly used to be like when He was your one great ambition, then to you too, I lovingly say, repent. Return to your first love. Admit that you've left the treasure troves of Jesus' fullness unexplored and unenjoyed and really unwanted. Ask God to renew within you the joy of His salvation and to unite you in concert with the Holy Spirit and with His people so that you too may again begin to mature in Jesus together. And finally, to the non-Christian, I'll not ask you to identify yourself, but I do have a question for you, but I'm going to ask others to help you answer it. That is, Christians. Yes, it's to the unbeliever, but I'm going to ask the believers to help you answer it. To relieve you, you're not going to identify yourself. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, stand, come forward, none of that. But there's something I want you to see. Grace Church members, if you are currently discipling someone, I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to the members of this church who are not currently in a discipling relationship. Helping another believer in our following of Jesus together. Here's my question to you. That is, church members not in a discipling relationship. If you would be willing to walk with anyone, same gender, who wants to know and follow Jesus for the next six months or so, if you would help them try to grasp the content of the message of the Gospel and how they can 
on biblical grounds, tap into the fullness of the gospel. If you would be willing to walk with them, I mean literally right beside them, through our processes of corporate discipleship, steeping in the gospel together in our starting point class, or walking through the church membership seminar called Foundations of Grace. If you would go with them to that class, if you would meet with them and let them ask any questions they want to, even if they think there's not a God in heaven or they're tempted to, or how do you know the Bible's true? If you would walk beside them, if you would sit down with them, if you would pray with them, listen to them, and then if God should will to bring them to Christ, if you would stand right beside them at their baptism, and you would join them at their covenant affirmation service, and if you would meet with them until they're stable enough in the faith to do the very same thing with somebody else, then I'm asking you to raise your hand. There are no less than 30, maybe 40, thank you hands. That's just members of the church who are willing to do that, and there were both genders and ages all over the spectrum. If you're not yet a Christian, or you're already a Christian, and you need help to know and how to enjoy the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, then there's about 40 people in the room today who God brought here who are ready and willing to help you. That means there is no excuse. You can follow Christ and you can follow Him now and we will help you. It would be our joy. In fact, we say this whole church exists to spread Christ's everlasting joy. So after this service, if you're one of the people who thinks, i got some questions or I know I'm not a Christian, then just find one of those people who just raises their hand. Somebody who is just sitting, sitting close to you and say, I'd like some help following Christ. When can we meet? And if they say no, come tell me. Okay? That's a deal.